Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, as always, and today I'm joined by Professors Rebecca Fitzgerald and Harry DeConning. Rebecca Fitzgerald is Professor of Cancer Prevention at the University of Cambridge. She's a specialist in cancer of the esophagus, and she's won multiple prestigious prizes for developing a new diagnosis method known as cytosponge. I'll spare you the details, but I'm assured it's a lot better than what came before. She's also Director of Medical Studies at Trinity College Cambridge, a Fellow of the British Academy of Medical Sciences, and a practicing cancer consultant in Britain's National Health Service. Meanwhile, Harry de Conning is Professor of Public Health and Screening Evaluation at Erasmus Medical Centre in Rotterdam. His research focuses particularly on how to design and run large-scale randomised control trials of screening programmes, as well as the public policy implications of those programmes. He served as an advisor to the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences and also led the EUtopia project, which tried to quantify the harms and benefits of cancer screening across Europe. And finally, as a duo, Harry and Rebecca jointly chaired the recent evidence review report on cancer screening in the European Union that was conducted by the Federation of European Academies of Medicine, FEME, on behalf of SAPEA to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors to the European Commission. So, hi, Rebecca and Harry. Thanks for waiting through all that. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you. So given everything I've just rattled off, it will surprise nobody that we're here today to talk about cancer screening and in particular the interesting wrinkles that come with trying to translate scientific evidence into public policy in cancer screening. But firstly, bearing in mind we have an audience that knows quite a bit about science and policy, but possibly very little about cancer prevention in public health. Perhaps one or both of you could explain what screening is, because it's not just the same as testing, right? So I think an important um, aspect of screening that differentiates it between patients going to see their doctors is it's a proactive invitation. So, so it doesn't rely on the individual seeking help. Um, you are asked and invited to come for a test. Yeah, so uh, there are lots of interesting tests out there, uh, but with cancer screening, we really want to apply a test that is effective and has a reasonable harm benefit ratio for the population as a whole. And so there are good examples, breast cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening, cervical. Those are mostly the existing ones in which indeed men and or women are invited often by public health institutes to get a screen. And we hope to have an earlier detection for some of the people that are being invited. Okay. And then just to fill out the context here, if I get called for screening, I take the test and I get a positive result. Then what? So, of course, that depends on which particular test you're having. But generally, they're triage tests. So it gives you an um, indication that there may be something awry. But it isn't necessarily the definitive answer to say, yes, you've got this cancer. Now you need this treatment. Usually, you're going to need some follow-up to confirm whether that is indeed the case um, and then to decide what to do about it. So it's a stepping stone to really cast the net wide um, in the population to see who is at highest risk who may well then have that cancer and then to drill down on it. Okay, so this already sounds like a stupid question in my head, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I don't know the answer. Why is this at all complicated or interesting as a policy decision? I mean, why don't we just screen everyone for everything? Or if that's too expensive, then at least screen as many people as we can for as much as we can. 
because it's a very delicate uh, mechanism. So if we would screen everyone for everything, we are going to do a lot of harms. We, because we are only selecting from those who get the test, if the test is good, but most tests are not good enough, actually. So only a small proportion, uh, we will give them benefits. And we can do lots of harms, radiation risk, complications of follow-up, anxiety, uh, false positives. That means uh, you are being referred and there's nothing wrong. And that's even in the good tests, that's the case. But there are, are, at the moment, there are more bad tests than good tests. So we are very in favor of having the good tests out there because we are giving benefits. But unfortunately, there are also many bad tests out there. By bad test, you mean the result is not very reliable, too many false positives? For instance, for instance something that we call it sensitivity, but something which is basically how sensitive, how good is the test in picking out an early stage disease? I, I, I don't know the correct answer, but maybe most tests have a sensitivity of uh, what, 10, 20%. So the person thinks I'm going for a good program. And we will pick only out 10 or 20% of the disease that is already out there in the population. But the individual thinks, oh, that's, that's good. I, I, I came for this test, so I must have had benefit. But in this case, like we are not finding 80% of the disease in the population, actually. So it's mm. a very delicate, delicate balance that we are addressing every time for each test, for each disease. And for each individual. So I guess in terms of testing everyone for everything, we're not all at equal risk for every cancer type. So, I mean, to state the obvious, the risk of breast cancer in men is extremely low. It, it, it does happen, really. But it's mm. so low that it's thought that the, you know, the harms weigh, weigh the benefits. And so we only invite women for breast cancer screening. So, and that's something that we've been thinking about much more in this evidence review about how we really think about um, maximizing the benefits and minimizing the harms by thinking about who we test for what. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess for me, the key thing is to understand that the harms are a, a big deal and can outweigh the benefits. Because my first instinct was to think, okay, I go and get a test. If it doesn't show anything, then I haven't lost anything. Maybe I can sleep a bit more soundly in my bed. And if it does pick something up, then, I mean, it's bad news, of course, but maybe my life is saved as a result. Yeah, but this is exactly the case. If we ask people about, and we, for instance, make these sort of information leaflets about pros and cons, and then we sometimes do let's say focus interviews with some people to say do we do you understand everything mostly we get back is you're so exaggerating the arms or how why why mention all these harms actually uh, it is just to say that indeed the benefits are are crucial for any individual also and they often think oh it must be it must be fine it's fine those harms are small but unfortunately it is not and you only know that after the test let's say all these harms come in the moment you have been invited and, and been tested. But of course, the reason we're having this discussion is because diagnosed late, cancer can be a terrible problem for the individual and for the healthcare system. So, you know, late stage diagnosis is generally going to be much more intensive treatment, usually involving systemic kind of therapies like chemotherapy, invasive surgery. So it's going to have big effects on your quality of life and the survival is going to be much poorer. Whereas if you diagnose it earlier, um, then of course, the whole principle behind screening is that earlier diagnosis will make the treatments much simpler, less side effects and the outcomes much better. So that's the prize, but you've got mm. to get it, get it right um, so that you really achieve that without having a lot of fallout in the meantime and, and causing those harms. Yeah, understood. And because we're talking here about screening, we're talking about public policy decisions rather than 
clinical decisions patient by patient. So, okay, then my next kind of maybe stupid question is, why is this a, a political decision rather than something that could be decided purely by experts? I mean, whether it's my doctor judging whether I need a test or some health expert making that call across a whole population. In either case, it doesn't seem like we need to involve politicians at all. Well, your questions are never are never silly, Toby. So <laughs> these are very important questions. So that, that comes to the distinction and the heart of the difference, I guess, between screening and diagnostic testing when you when you choose to go and see your GP versus when you're invited. So if we're going to do something on a population level, then you know we have to evaluate that evidence at a population level, which means not just thinking about the individual in front of you and the pros and cons, because clinicians do indeed make those decisions all the time and decide whether to refer for a test, which also weighs up benefits and harms. But now we're thinking on a population level, and we're also thinking about how you implement it at that scale and how you pay for it, including picking up the follow-up tests and treatments. So it, it does become... I think, you know, inevitably it has to be a policy-led decision. So it's basically about resource allocation, money, basically. These screening programs are for free eh, in most countries, well, I think in many countries. So yeah, there has to be a political will or a political statement about the financing, which is actually very cheap often, okay? And people think, oh, these are millions, but that's, of course, nothing compared to the healthcare costs in general. But anyhow, um, we often say this should be a free program for individuals. So that is where our politicians come in, because to some extent you would say, no, that's not a, there should not be a political opinion on it. There's a, it's a scientific argument. It's pros and cons. And, and someone has to weigh it and say, well, probably for the whole population or for the targeted group, this is a good, good way to go for. And I guess yeah. added to that, you have to incentivize all you know, it should be free. You want to make it easy for people to get this testing because you're trying to encourage them to come voluntarily. And that is going to take a bit of time out of their schedule and things. It's not something otherwise they might do. So you need the policy decision and all that goes around that in terms of the education and the explaining to motivate people to come and have the test because screening at the end of the day will only be successful if people go and do it. And, and that, that actually is much more complicated than it sounds. So it's not just enough to send you a, a text message or a letter saying, come for this screen, to assume that everyone will necessarily think that's a good idea and go and get it done. Okay, so good. We're starting to move from talking about the science of screening, which is useful to understand the background, to how that science makes its way into policy. So how fine-grained is the political involvement in these cases? I guess it will vary from country to country, so I suppose I'm asking you, with reference to the governance structures you're familiar with. But broadly speaking, is it just a case of persuading a decision maker to give you the money? Or do those decision makers tend to also get involved in making calls about who gets screened, at what age, at what risk level, and so on? Yeah, I, I, I'm sometimes surprised on how much political involvement there is, actually. I'm probably a bit uh, raised too, too scientifically or something like that. But the, my point would be, indeed, we were, we're saying you make the best to estimate these harms and benefits. And that means there are years, decades before you have the introduction of a program. You have a, a big randomized controlled trials to show whether it works. Then you're going to try and quantify harms and benefits. You see that often also in trials, but you also have to do some other stuff. 
And then there is something on the table that says, well, we think this is roughly the situation. And what else do you need? You could, uh, could argue. That's, of course, um, there is much more to that. So you have to take into account stakeholders. You have to take into barriers and facilitators of a program. But, well, you have to think what other political arguments should there be. But maybe I'm... Well, yeah, and that's no. my question, really. How is, in your experience, how is it on the ground? So, so there are now quite nice examples in which uh, it seems quite different from the past. So lung cancer screening is a clear example. There have been two big trials, one in the US, one in Europe, and they both showed that now with CT scanning, we can really do a good job. In the past, you had an X-ray, it didn't show anything, you had, no, you had nothing in hand. Yeah, sure, you should stop smoking, that's clear cut, but we know that. But the point is, uh, many, many people in Europe now still at risk for lung cancer. Uh, we think you should have a lung cancer screening program then for a certain risk group, of course. Well, you can imagine, of course, that there are then all sorts of arguments around the issue of smoking and so on. So it's, it's rather difficult to get it on the political agenda. Whereas, for instance, I think we had not have seen that in, for instance, breast cancer and breast cancer screening. Again, breast cancer, clear cut, a major burden in Europe. And we have, unfortunately, having screening programs for 25 or 30 years already. But I, I haven't seen that, let's say, forceful opposition, let's say, in breast, for instance, compared to lung. And you could argue why. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the concept of screening has obviously been around a long time. But I think it's fairly recent, actually, that people have begun to really realise afresh that in order to have an impact on outcomes <laughs> for cancer, we need to really look again at screening, what we screen for, how we do it. And, and we've got better information, I think, and evidence around how you identify the at-risk population better. We have new technologies coming downstream. And so I think there has been a bit of a shift in terms of policymakers, funders, healthcare systems, thinking more about prioritizing earlier diagnosis, and that includes screening. So I think maybe the time is kind of ripe to relook at this in a way that it hasn't been quite so possible before to kind of reevaluate across the, the piece. I think it's encouraging that maybe COVID is an interesting way to reflect on this, where scientific evidence has really been informing policy. There's really nice dialogue emerging between the scientists and the policy makers to try and make sure that so far as possible within the constraints that they have to consider, the, the evidence is taken seriously. And I, I think that is a very good thing. So what's the process? Again, realizing it's not the same everywhere probably, but suppose a new program is proposed for a, a particular kind of cancer. And you take the evidence to the policymaker and say, okay, this is what we recommend. What happens then? How is the decision made? Well, in the UK, we have a national screening committee. Mm -hmm. So that is the gateway to consider new programs or changes to existing programs. And who's on it? Is that academic experts? Um, it's, it's a committee made up of people with different expertise. People with expertise in statistics, public health, health economics, screening as a discipline but it is academically led independent of politicians okay and it decides or it makes recommendations that politicians then dispose of it makes recommendations i believe okay thank you and harry are you familiar with how it works in the netherlands 
Yeah, yeah, it's in even a bit special in the sense that we are the only country in the world, I think Flanders also has something like it, but the only country in the world that has a specific population screening act. So by law, the Minister of Health has to give its permission to have a screening program where you proactively, as Rebecca says, proactively um, uh, invite people if it's for cancer, if it includes radiation risk, or if you are going to screen for diseases that you don't have a treatment for, which is, of course, not so often the case that you then want a screening program, but there are situations. Uh, so for these three specific cases, the Minister of Health has to approve, give a license. So the, the uh, GP cannot start a screening program in his region with all, all his patients, for instance, and invite them for a certain cancer screening program. That's not allowed in the Netherlands. So in practice, it sort of runs the same way as in the UK, that there is the Health Council of the Netherlands. They make a special committee and they are going to decide or they're going to advise the Minister of Health. So they are going to weigh the pros and cons and it's indeed multidisciplinary uh, medical scientists, um, behavioral scientists, often an economist. Um, and so they also going to get all the evidence and make an advice for the Minister of Health in this case. And, and I think in many countries, this is roughly the same, except for this Population Screening Act, uh, but that indeed there is some, some national committee, some governance that advises the Minister of Health to say yes or no. Yeah, because Rebecca, I guess the UK, unlike the Netherlands, is in the interesting position that the healthcare system, or most of it, is run directly by the government. There aren't really individual providers in there. So I suppose that means the decisions could be taken and implemented very directly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you've hinted, both of you, at some of the criteria that are used to make the decision uh, already. Obviously, cost is a big one, and this balance of harms and benefits is also very important. Are there other criteria? Is this formalized? Like, how is the decision made to approve a proposal or reject it? So um, I think still at the end of the 60s, there have been two people, Wilson and Jungner. They got the question actually from the WHO to think about screening. And they made a nice report with sort of 10 rules. Uh, and still many people in the world use these criteria. So, and they are all more than 50 years old. And that's indeed about how bad is this disease? What is the burden? Do we have a test? Can we find something early enough? Uh, it should not be a once and for all uh, investigation. So it's sort of sort of rules that uh, you can tick. The unfortunate thing, what I why I find Wilson you know, outdated, is because you can tick them all and you still don't have them quantified. Sort of. So you could say yes, there is an early disease. Yes, we have a test. Uh, yes, uh, uh, it doesn't cost so much. And then people say, okay, come on, we we go. Uh, so the, the new rules, let's say the new rules are really about, is it effective? How much benefits? Do the benefits outweigh the harms? And the final thing is cost effectiveness. So how much does it cost? What do I get for it? That last part is now in any application. If you haven't had have that in, uh, no one is going to, to, to judge it anymore. So cost effectiveness at the end is also a crucial one. And then probably we still uh, we have equity issues, feasibility issues. We might think about stakeholders. So, so there are certainly still an important list. Most of these 
national committees, I think, are, are, are looking at these first three things. Yeah, absolutely. One of the criteria is about how important the health problem is um, on a population basis. But as you start thinking about more targeted, so, you know, not necessarily the entire population, but thinking about a subset of that population, it might then, that might need some more nuanced thinking because it can still be a very important health problem for that group if that group starts to get a smaller and smaller fraction then at some point you start to say well maybe this isn't a population screening program the other mm -hmm. important criteria of course is that you can do something about the thing you detect um, in a way that actually is going to be meaningful and ultimately reducing mortality is still the gold standard piece of evidence so there's been a lot of discussion about that whether in the 21st century do we need to be doing trials with, with mortality as an endpoint or can we be looking at a stage shift? In other words, we're detecting more cancers earlier compared to the old way of doing it. But uh, still, I know that the UK National Screening Committee still take <clears throat> mortality endpoints as um, an essential piece of evidence. Hmm. I'm intrigued about one thing that you mentioned, Harry, especially when you were talking about the, the law in the Netherlands. So this question about how public policy for screening interacts with individual decisions taken by doctors uh, and by patients. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that in the Netherlands, if I go to my doctor like asymptomatically and just ask for a test, they're not allowed to offer me that test as a one-off. Or just clarify how that works. So if you go to your doctor and you ask for something because of something, then he, he or she should have this interaction with you and I explain pros and cons, and he can then uh, give you the test. But it's the other way around. If the GP thinks, listen up, I, I know this new test, I should get everyone from my practice uh, this pancreatic test. But that he is not allowed to do, and then send you the letter or, or phone you and say, please come in tomorrow. So there's, there's a difference. A, a GP in the, healthcare, in the healthcare setting, let's say it's again still the individual decision of the doctor or so to, to do his or her best. Yeah. In connection with that, one of the things that came out of our evidence review, um, for example, in prostate cancer, is that sometimes these tests are used as a kind of screening tool, but outside of a screening program. Yeah. And that starts to introduce a lot of variability. They're not necessarily applied in the best way. And then you stop going into a problem where the harms outweigh the benefits. Okay, so then this is what I was kind of... So one of the recommendations you make in your report, or that the advisors make based on the evidence you gave them, is to stop opportunistic testing and just stick with screening programs, which is, it seems to me, a strong thing to say. And it really interests me from a, from a, a science for policy perspective, this distinction between science-informed population-wide policies and freedom of individual patient choice or, or physician choice. Like, I could understand if the argument was purely based on money. You might say, okay, on a population level, we have taken advice from scientists and we have decided how best to spend our finite money, and it's this. And if we end up also funding lots of other suboptimal tests because individuals ask for them or whatever, well, they're kind of sidestepping the system. That's a concern, and I get that. But it sounds like you were saying, or Rebecca, at least you were saying, it's not just about the money. There are also kind of in principle reasons why it's better to bring the science in at the policy level rather than the individual level. I think that's what you were saying. Could, could you just develop a bit more what you meant there? 
Yeah, so, I, so the prostate cancer is one almost easy example. The test, prostate-specific antigen testing, that's a very specific uh, test, it can discover a prostate cancer like up to 10 or 15 years earlier. And that simply means that you should, for instance, let's say in general, say stop screening around something like 65 or 70 or so, because you're actually, if you screen at 70, you may be picking out cancers that would otherwise evolve like 10 years later on when the person actually already had died because of other diseases or so. So in general, in screening, uh, it would be logic to have a, some sort of upper age limit to stop screening because you do more harms. And in prostate cancer screening is the example where the opportunistic testing at the moment is, is taking place in, in men age 70 plus more than it should be at age 55 or 60 or 65. So these younger men do not get the test or very little. And it's these older men who get, are getting the test. And, and surely the, the individual thinks, surely uh, it's good for me to have this test. But as a group, it's not. So indeed, it's a waste of resources, but it's also giving much more harms to these individuals uh, and less benefits if we change this into a systematic uniform program. So um, if, you start to, if you start to actually dissect out what those harms are, you know, if that, that might mean that you go and have biopsies, which lead to a complication, or even then get advice to have some surgery, which lead you with, leave you with problems of incontinence or impotence. Or, so that, you know, there are serious harms. Yeah. Mm. I think certainly in my mind, I'm not very good, uh, at least at least not without thinking very carefully and kind of counterintuitively. I'm not very good at weighing up these kinds of risks and harms. You know, something terrifying that might kill me. I want that to go away as a priority. And that kind of overrides the part of my brain that's saying, yeah, but the chance is very small and you have other things to consider. That's surely that's the difficulty, but that's also the difficulty the individual clinician has. You think you are in the, in the practice or the office and things he, he or she will know, uh, but it's the same difficult decision to make for a person at age 70 or 75. Uh, and that is why sometimes these sort of decisions have to be, well, decisions have to be at least uh, taken more proactively at a, at, a, at a more national level or so to say, well, we think on average for this population, this is much better than what is going on now. Yeah, that's interesting. A, a concrete example of where you might reasonably say that a population-wide policy is better than an individual clinical decision, even when both are well-informed by science. But yes, you're right. Surely, um, we have had a court case in the Netherlands on breast cancer screening of women aged 81 and 83. And we have a program where it, it stops at a certain age and you're still allowed to go to a GP and ask for a mammogram at older ages, any age. Um, but as this program, we have a certain operation limit. And then there were three women, 81, 83, they went to court and said, why, why do I not get this national program? And, and that's exactly the difficulty that at the individual level, uh, you don't know these pros and cons, but as, as a group as a whole, you know, women of 83 or so on average will not benefit so much. They will probably have much more harms as a group than benefits. It's a difficult decision. And that's why, again, any person can get a test in, I think, all these countries in the whole EU if mm -hmm. he or she goes to the GP and says, listen, uh, for this and these reasons, I think I need a mammogram. And if then the clinician often will say yes to that. 
So I think that's exactly why, because it is so difficult. I mean, and delicate, this balance. And that's why you have to take that decision for the population group that you're testing, not leave it to be made on an individual basis. Because you can't, it's very hard when you've got the person in front of you to have that broader vision, an overview of actually the, you know, this ratio of benefits and harms. All right. So cancer screening, I think, is a topic where uh, scientific input is being given in an area where there's also considerable public interest and some controversy and, and generally strong feelings. Um, and there are many topics like that. I mean, all kinds of things are covered in this podcast. COVID is kind of a hackneyed example, but you know, you've know, you got this science under controversy in the area of climate change, in migration policy, and so on. And it's always interesting to ask in those cases, how influential is the science relative to everything else? So in your experience, how much do policymakers listen to scientific advice as opposed to all the other loud voices that might be saying something different? Yeah, difficult question. So let's say when I started my career a long time ago, we said, okay, we're making these calculations on pros and cons of cancer screening in this case, and we give it to the Minister of Health and they have to decide. So in the beginning of my career, we said, okay, uh, that's up for the politicians actually to decide. Uh, and that uh, has, has changed, I think. Now, I think that's actually not a good thing because there were unfortunately not so many politicians with knowledge anymore on this aspect. But so uh, now we make these calculations and we basically say, well, we think this is one of the best programs. You may still choose a couple of them and based on costs or whatever. But please don't take the wrong one, let's say. So we really help them, I think. And whether that works, I think um, that's uh, maybe still 50-50. I unfortunately know enough programs where we had still having big troubles of convincing politicians or we even have randomized controlled trials with a positive advice and nothing happens with it. So I'm I'm still probably positive if I say it's 50-50 maybe. And I think that's unfortunate, but... No, I think the other thing is it has to be a, a dialogue and it, and it has to be not just a kind of, you know, you do an evidence review and you just send it in and then you just leave it up to everybody. You keep collating the evidence, keep having the discussions, the debates, which includes all the stakeholders, um, includes the, the patient voice, public voice, which can be very powerful. Um, and the evidence keeps changing. And so something we've also been considering is how you start, continue to learn through implementation, um, how you continue to review the evidence and have your guidelines such that they're not going to be stuck in stone for 10 or 20 years, but you can adapt them more easily if new evidence comes along. Yeah, and that that relates to the issue of stakeholder analysis. We didn't do that in my first 15 years of career. Uh, and I think it's crucial indeed to understand what the power is of individual stakeholders, what they think and why. So indeed, um, the issue of, okay, I'm now going to decide for one program and it can never change anymore. I, can, I cannot get rid of it anymore, etc. That's, of course, probably the feeling in many politicians or policymakers, um, which is not true. Uh, we, we really can change a program. We have now some evidence you can also sort of scale up. So you can also start with a more targeted group, with a more high-risk group, and then maybe if everything goes right, even expand or say, well, it's not going okay. You have to monitor and evaluate and say, listen, this we thought it would work like this, but it doesn't, and we stop. 
And surely it's not easy, but it, I mean, you have, you have the money yourself. So the moment tomorrow you stop with the money, you, you, the program is, is done. So again, it's important to have indeed this conversation and understand what is the problem. But for instance, the cervical cancer screening is a, is a good example in this respect. There's now HPV vaccination. And that really means that in probably five years time, some of the cohorts of women that have been vaccinated or should have a different screening program or at some point even don't need any screening anymore. That's a, that's a clear example of how by time and by evidence and by new technology, you change your program actually. Yeah, I think knowing when to start new things but also stop existing things or change them is really important. And I think it's generally been kind of said, oh, well, once you've started something, you can't stop but there'll be an outcry. But it's all about really thinking it through and and involving your stakeholders in those decisions. And so I think cervix is the obvious example and a slightly more difficult one, but an important one might be breast cancer where we know that the risk is not uniform. And so some of our women are being overscreened and some are being underscreened. And um, it's not, not a matter of kind of necessarily just completely stopping or taking it away, but it's about being more precise and tailoring it to the individual and get how you get that message across. So, so that a woman isn't scared that they're having something less frequently than they were before. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's an interesting communication challenge then. It seems like it would be easy in the case of cervical cancer, as you mentioned, the message can be, um, hey, you don't need screening anymore because the vaccination has reduced your risk so much that it's not something you need to worry about. So hooray, everyone's happy, right? The money can be spent on something else. A bit different to say to someone, because of our changing understanding of the risks, we're no longer going to screen you as often. But then hardest of all is when you have to say, because of our changing understanding of the risks, we don't think this screening will help you anymore. Basically, like we're optimizing away from you towards another part of the population we think it's better to try and help. It might be difficult, but maybe if you start saying to that person, but actually we also know that you're, we're now introducing this suite of different screenings and we now can see that you're more at risk of this and that than the other. So we think we should be focused on this. The whole, the whole discussion gets more complicated in a way, but more it's actually more sophisticated. And um, I think, I think yeah. it can be done. And the, 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 the public is getting much more educated and literate in some of these sorts of decisions because it's much more open and transparent and there's lots more scientific discussion and debate going on in our everyday lives you know be it on the climate be it covid and i think that really helps and that's a good thing yeah so we've recently done an analysis as an example for women who have smoked or are still smoking they they have at the moment like four programs to choose of breast or colorectal cervical lung cancer let's say if, if, that's, if that's being applied uh, sooner or later. Um, uh, and then we really made an analysis to say, listen, you, maybe you don't want to go for four programs. Maybe you want only three or two or one. And actually then, and then you can, I know it's a bit scientific, but then you can make these calculations and basically say and possibly explain, well, uh, in your case, please, if you just want one screen for one reason, um, please come for a lung cancer screening first. And if you want two, please come in for lung and breast or colon. So I'm, it's probably colon, sorry. Uh, anyhow, and, and yeah, you're right. How to communicate this and will it work out uh, are very important steps 
to consider. Uh, it's not. It's probably not easy, but yeah, I'm not also not that negative about about this. Good. Thank you. A last question for either of you or both of you. Um, imagine you have somebody coming into this field who is going to interact with policymakers, going to give scientific advice. What tips would you give them about that process or what needs to be said that perhaps is not said enough in your experience? So, so my, my opinion now is a bit like if the evidence is reasonably clear cut, I think it's fine to have a national committee decide and have different people involved and patients involved, etc. Um, but what I see more and more, and that is related to, for instance, uh, more targeted subgroups or where the evidence is a bit, a bit more difficult or the weighing of harms and benefits is a bit more difficult, then I'm more and more in a situation where I think these national committees uh, do not reflect the individual choices. So then we have to have another way of doing this because then it almost is as if 10 experts say no to something. Whereas we have had this conversation about these are individual choices. So we have to go more and take that into account or either, for instance, having a, a easier said than done, but having a risk calculator or a calculator or a, a pros and cons app with counseling or whatever. But anyhow, more and more, I think these national committees have a problem if it becomes too, let's say, a bit too more individual or too that the individual choices have to take into account. That's, a, that's one thing that I wanted to address. And I, think I think in connection with that, it's important that the programmes aren't just considered in isolation one at a time. So I think it's very much connected with what Harry was just saying, but you have to think about for the individual how many things they're then going to be asked to take part in and how you join it up to make sure that it's accessible, equitable, you know, you're going to get your uptake rates high and so on. So... As, as we're considering more and more, you can't just think of each of them in isolation. And, and also some of them are quite complicated. So can it, I mean, you want some independence ultimately in the decision-making because we all have vested interests and so on. But can a, can a single committee cover all the nuances of these complicated um, individual evidence bases and considerations to then put them together? And maybe, I think that's what's been very interesting. And I think it's worked well. With, with the work that Harry and I have done for this European review is that we've taken several different um, approaches in terms of the literature review and also calling on experts, international experts from around the world who really know a lot about their subject for us to then kind of take all of that and synthesize it in a way that's, you know, hopefully ready to be digestible. And then other people can, of course, um, take that and this has kind of been a layered approach in Europe as to how it then ultimately reaches policy um, it's, it's not a single kind of we do the expert review and then it goes straight to policy but um, we are calling on people who know a lot about it and I think it would have been quite different if we'd have selected just I don't know six or eight individuals and we'd sat around a table and tried to discuss all of the things that we considered because we wouldn't have had the expertise in the room mm. and we called I'm not sure the total number that involved in our evidence review but I think it was 60 people or so. Well this has been a really interesting tour of an area of policy advice I'd, I'd thought very little about and which I now see is fascinating and <laughs> nuanced and complex as they invariably all are when you scratch the surface. Um, but thank you very much Harry DeConning and Rebecca Fitzgerald for giving me and the listeners that tour. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. 
The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.